the night that he came home. That night, he tore a bloody rampage through the world of cinema, and suddenly, trick-or-treating was lethal again. His name was Michael Myers, and the night was Halloween. Welcome to Filmstrip and our Halloween retrospective series. Here to protect you from the clutches of Michael Myers or the Silver Shamrock Corporation are Brian. More fancy talk. And Jay. We are talking about evil on two legs. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the Halloween films. It's time, Michael. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. This is our review of Halloween, starring Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, PJ Solis, Nancy Stevens, and Nick Castle. Directed by John Carpenter. Released in 1978 on a budget of $325,000, grossed over $55 million at the box office, and stands as one of the most profitable independent films of all time. Matter of fact, I think it held that record um, until Blair Witch Project came along. And then I think that fell to Paranormal Activity or something like that. So it's it's been passed twice now, but for a long time, this was it. Um, I have talked about Halloween... Uh, gosh, I don't know how many times on how many different podcasts. Film Strip, Fabish Factor, lots of the art of slaying. I mean, it comes up a lot because it's one of my big ones. And I I don't know. I really wondered if, if I could ever... There were two reasons I was reluctant to ever go down and do a series of Halloween reviews. Uh, one is I didn't know if I could be objective about something that I knew so well and, and cared about so much. Doing Star Wars this summer has actually taught me that, yeah, I probably could. So if you listen to those reviews, you know why. But... But, uh, you know, this is old hat for me. I know these movies like the back of my hand. Now, Brian, this is new for you, though, right? Brand new. I've not watched any of these before. I've seen bits and pieces here and there as they're on TV throughout the years. But um, honestly, I didn't remember anything from this one. And more than likely, I saw some of the older ones instead, or the uh, newer ones instead of this one. And so, yeah, this is all brand new for me. Um, I just, I, I'm not, I'm a big horror movie fan, but I've never really, I never go out of my way to see them. So I, I, I know the nightmares on Elm streets. I've seen all those. I've seen a couple of the Friday, the 13th, obviously big fans of the leprechaun series. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but you know, other than that, it's, it's one offs here and there. I've seen, I think the thing once and thought it was stupid and, oh. uh, uh, you know, all sorts of things. The howling. God, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do that. That's more in line with the crap we've reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, but Halloween is one of the series that I've actually never sat down and watched. And I know that you've been uh, talking to me about potential of doing this. And I thought, okay, uh, when the time's right, we'll, we'll get to this. We were kind of stuck in leprechaun land for several <laughs> uh, years. And so yeah. now we're kind of released from that at this point that we can go ahead and do this. So I thought, why not? Let's give Halloween a try. I'm I'm up for it. And so what do we got? Seven, eight films we got to do? Oh, there's, there's 10 of them. <laughs> 10, oh. <laughs> and, uh, and depending on how we decide to break up one of them that has two very infamous cuts, we may want to do an extra stuff. So who knows? Oh, this, this will, when the time it's done, though, this will be our longest 
film strip series ever. Right now, that is a record held by Hellraiser, and I'm glad we're going to be passing that up. Uh, not because I didn't enjoy those reviews, <laughs> but anybody that listened to those knows that after the second one, the nosedive that that series took is, it's legendary. Let's just say that. And so I'm looking forward to going back to these. Like I said, I mean, they're, they're things I know really well. I talk about them a lot. I've talked to you about them quite a bit and was surprised that, you know, the fact that you had seen some slasher films, you'd never seen this one because all of I those know, that you yeah. had mentioned a Friday the 13th, in some ways Nightmare on Elm Street, but things like My Bloody Valentine, we reviewed that once, April Fool's Day, Prom Night, all that all of those came from Halloween, and you, I know you like the Scream movies, we've talked about those before, that first Scream movie, I mean, it's hard to not see Halloween's footprints all over it, especially now after you've seen it, so maybe someday we can get around to those, but really the big thing for us was, you know, we were in the midst of trying to finish up, you know, two or three more seasons of Buffy or whatever, and finally decided, you know, what let's let's get through Buffy and then we'll start doing some different series and so this was a big one that I wanted to wait on until I knew we had cleared a uh, the big Buffy hurdle so cleared a large chunk of time yeah indeed (laughs) it it certainly does and uh, you know we always try to do some horror stuff around October this time this is going to run from August through October and lest our loyal it's Halloween it's Shocktober for months yes exactly (laughs) Shocktober for a couple months but lest our leprechaun fans you know think we're going to abandon them because yes we know there's a new one coming out we will get to leprechaun origins we promise in a a timely manner we'll get I will force Jay to watch that one (laughs) I'm actually down to see it because apparently they're trying to take it seriously which that's that's another podcast for another day but I am excited to be here talking about Halloween with you because like I said I really have grown up with this film and I want to tell a, a real quick story and it's a little bit more of a personal story but when I was a kid I was involved in a bicycle accident and not to go into the too much of it I had a, a few injuries that lingered for a few years, and I had to do a lot of testing. And so when I was like nine years old, I had to do this test where I stayed up all night long. I didn't eat anything after midnight, and then I went in and did this, like, I don't, I don't even know what it was, an EGG, EEG, I don't know. People can tell me about it, you know, know more about that than, than I do. But I had to stay up all night, and the only way that my dad and mom thought that they could get me to stay up all night, because, you know, now, this anybody that knows me, this is funny, because I don't sleep. But back then, I valued sleep very much and the only way they thought they could get me to stay up all night was to show me the scariest stuff they could get their hands on so they (laughs) went down to the local video store this is like the mom and pop hills video store and i remember my dad talking to the guy that that was running and said you know i gotta keep this kid up all night and you know he's seen jaws so what can i show a nine-year-old that'll keep him up all night and he picked out two films off the off the wall he went to him and said these two will do it he pulled the original Nightmare on Elm Street off and this one, Halloween. And when I saw the cover of it, which is the, you know, the iconic original cover with the, the pumpkin and then the knife and the hand going down by it, which is, by the way, it's an awesome graphic. I, my eyes just boomed, you know, open and I thought this is going to be the freakiest thing ever. And so. I know we ended up watching, I think Empire Strikes Back or something like that earlier in the evening. It was actually on Halloween. I, I went trick or treating. Then I'm sitting there eating candy with my dad, you know, watching this stuff. And he puts this thing in around, I don't know, nine, ten o'clock at night. And I won't say it freaked me out, but it, it, it or scared me necessarily, but it, it just blew my mind what I watched over the next 90 minutes. And I think I watched it, I don't know, three or four times in the, you know, the few days we had had it rented there. 
and then ended up seeing the second one on cable and uh you know it I, I was obsessed with it for several years and then it wasn't really until my teenage years that I caught back up with the series and then through college and stuff and I've I've owned them in various formats since but this one goes all the way back for me to being a kid and I actually saw it on Halloween night so uh, I think you know anytime that that time of the year rolls around for me I always think of that moment and this film and your know, memories with mom and dad sitting around watching this thing so yeah my parents were not twisted they were there observing, you know, what I was watching. Uh, but I think I've told stories before my grandma that she was into like suspense films and Hitchcock films. And for what this series is, and it is a slasher series, this first installment owes more to those suspense films of the 60s yeah. and 70s than I think it does the, the schlock horror that came through the 80s and the 90s. I would definitely agree with that statement for sure. Yeah. so Definitely more suspense than horror. All right, Jay. Well, we've introduced the film, so let's go ahead and go into it. What is the plot summary for this, what we like to call suspenseful version? Halloween 1978. That's the year I was born, by the way. <laughs> now I feel really old. So. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, to keep it as simple as possible, the film begins with six-year-old Michael Myers killing his teenage sister Judith on Halloween in 1963 in the small town of Haddonfield, Illinois. He is subsequently hospitalized at the Smith's Grove Sanitarium under the care of Dr. Sam Loomis. Fifteen years later, Michael escapes and returns to his hometown where he stalks a girl named Laurie Strode and her friends as they babysit on Halloween night. One by one, Michael kills the teens until he finally faces off with Laurie, who bests him twice before he finally begins to strangle her. Dr. Loomis, who've, who has been hot on his trail all night, shows up and shoots Michael six times, knocking him off the balcony. But when he looks out the window to the ground below, Michael is nowhere to be seen. And that's about as simple as a plot summary as I can give us. Uh, you know, I think uh, that's one of the things that makes this movie work is really how simple it is. And uh, we'll get into yeah. more of the details as we as we claw all through it here. It seems awful short, but I think it sums up what we do see on screen quite well. A lot of this uh, movie is visual and audio, you yeah. know? It's the visual aid and the audio aids that, that bring this together. The dialogue itself is minimal and, you know, not even great. But overall, you're more involved because of what you see on the screen and what you hear on the uh, coming out of the speakers than anything else. So, yeah, I, I think that sums it up quite well. You, you hit on three words there that I really want to talk about, okay? And, the, and the, the first one is the visual stuff. And credit has to be given to not only to John Carpenter, who is a visionary, but Dean Cundy, the cinematographer here. Now, that may not be a name that you'd recognize or whatever, but I guarantee you, you've seen movies that he shot. So, because not only did he do you know Halloween 1 and 2 and 3, oddly enough, but he went on to do Escape from New York. He did The Thing, which you said you didn't care for, but he shot Romancing <laughs> the Stone. He's the director of photography behind Back to the Future. I know that's a big one for you. All of those films mm -hmm. he did. He did Jurassic Park, Apollo 13. I mean, the guy is, is considered to be one of the magicians with a camera. I mean, he is just great with a camera. And so much of what you get here is... Dean Cundy and John Carpenter's youthful, uh, you know, exuberance working on screen. John Carpenter was, I think, 30 when they made this. Dean Cundy was like 24, 25. They, I mean, everybody that worked in this film was young. John Carpenter was the oldest person there. And so it's, I mean, there's a lot of young people that worked on this that have long careers in Hollywood, and, and Cundy's one of them. So the visual's certainly a stunning part of, of what's here. The second part, and this is where I really want to start, Brian, is the music. Uh, famous little story, and I 
love to hear him tell it. Carpenter says he showed us a, a screening of this to an executive who told him this is the most boring thing I've ever watched in my life. Then it didn't have the soundtrack on it. And then he came mm. back with the soundtrack and she told him later, you know, scared the pants off of her, essentially. And absolutely. And when you open up with that just that banging piano and that five four time and that close up on that just that you know, flickering candle in the jack o' lantern. It certainly sets the mood for the first two and a half minutes. With without anything but just words on the screen and a pumpkin, it already set in the mood. Yeah, and I think as I was watching this for the first time, sitting there, I was messaging back and forth with you about how amazing the soundtrack of this movie is because it's it's basically makes this movie. And so to hear the story of how he took it without the soundtrack and and people thought it was boring, I can totally see that because it would be pretty boring of a movie without the um, the magic that the music brings to it because the music makes it sends chills up your body it puts the hairs on your on your arms up in the air i mean it really lends to what you're seeing on the screen and brings it to life you know oh yeah it, it, a lot of this is just cameras moving and you see the the what's around you right it's basically from the viewpoint of whoever is camera at the time and so the music adds so much to that and and so yeah whoever did the soundtrack to this did an absolutely amazing job and made this movie as good as it is well that is john carpenter my friend he is the wow. he is the bowling green symphony orchestra that's where he's from and he just made that up it's him and a synthesizer and he huh. he tells that his father or stepfather taught him five four time on a set of bongos and he thought that was just off enough that if you did a little thing on a piano like that it could be creepy and to hear deborah hill the co-producer co-writer of this tell the story is that he would sit around and just play the music to this while they were trying to write it to set the mood and she said it just freaked her out even then and uh, and i mean it's it's amazing to think about that that's you know uh, there are a lot of uh, iconic horror scores tubular bells psycho you know this one's right up there with them i mean i think people i think people that have never seen halloween may have heard it somewhere along the way it's been used in so many different things and it's so it's such a big part of what this movie is and it you can't watch this movie and not have that affect you you know that like that is just yeah. just a part of the film uh, not only the main theme but the little slow themes and all the stings and all that stuff i mean yeah you're right i mean without it it would just be a lot of people walking around in the dark you know yeah i mean it really was yeah that's all it is it's pretty cheap i mean and uh you know again the the cheapness of filmmaking carpenter had to come up with something and that's what he came up with i thought that was great yeah it's very good i mean and that makes sense with the budget the way it is that you're not going to get a well-known composer or you know you're not gonna get john carpenter or uh sorry john williams to do anything for you or anything (laughs) like that but uh you know that blows my mind that he's the one who did it and more props to him for that that's awesome yeah the the music in this is definitely part of it but then we open it up again on the film and it's just that that shot again that goes on and then you get the kids doing the little chant and then the opening shot probably the the other more famous part of this is that you open up with the killer's point of view and most people will yeah. say oh that started with Halloween that's actually not true Black Christmas and Peeping Tom had done that before and I only know that because I'm a big horror nerd but I mean this is the one that made it well everybody's got to do this now you know because it was the the point of view of the killer and it's a it's a heck of a way to introduce you I mean you you see this this 
you know, point of view running around this house and these two people making out on the couch, they run upstairs. And I mean, when the lights go off and that first little music thing hits and then that, that person walks inside, the, you know, the hand grabs the knife. It's, it's unsettling because you don't know what you're seeing if you don't, if you've never seen it. So my question to you is what, what did you think when you watched that? Well, the thing that blew my mind because uh, coming in as a first time viewer is after everything took place, right? I mean, obviously you're like, okay, this is Michael Myers, right? And we're seeing this. When he revealed himself to be this little kid in a clown mask, that blew blew my mind. I had no idea, right, that he was this tiny kid. <laughs> and so I was just like, holy crap, what the hell's wrong with this kid, you know? You've got sons, like, near that age, so I can only imagine, yeah. like, how unnerving that would be to see. And that's one thing that, you know, I've introduced this film to a lot of my friends, and I, I never tell them about that part of it. And I hope that they don't know it, you know, because I want that to be the shock, because it is a shock. I mean, it's a real shock. The funny thing is, is how, like, nonchalant the parents react to it. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that or not. I don't know who they got playing the mom. She just yeah. she kind of puts her hands in her pockets. I'm like, every mother in the world I know would be running in that house to figure out where, where the hell did this boy with this bloody knife come from. It is it is one of the weird things, but Carpenter, you know, I guess he's just trying to set the creepy mood, and it, it certainly does. It's a very creepy moment. Again, yeah, you're right. They come out. He comes outside, and the parents are just getting home from wherever they were, some party, right? Apparently, people in this town like to party <laughs> and leave their kids home alone, yeah. because that happens with almost everyone in this yeah, town. Yeah, there are no parents in Haddonfield. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? So they're coming home, and, and here's Michael Myers in a clown suit with a bloody knife and I, I i don't know if they were just kind of in a state of shock and that was what we're supposed to get out of it because they cut away pretty quickly after they reveal that or or what i don't think they fully realized that uh, he murdered their daughter right? right and the thing is you know she goes upstairs has sex with her boyfriend the boyfriend leaves and michael is watching the boyfriend leave waits for the boyfriend mm. to leave and then goes and murders the sister now i wanted to ask you you know why let the boyfriend live that always puzzled me for years i was like what i don't know why why if he's gonna go kill why not kill them both well the only the only thing i can think of is that uh he doesn't like the fact that she is sleeping with a guy because she's a girl and underage and whatever else, and that may, might have triggered him. Because it seems like he goes after the girls who are banging their boyfriends. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Right? Yeah, you know what? I, I agree, and that's a, what a lot of the critical you know math thinks of this film they talk about that the, the the moral dilemma and the rule that it creates in horror films if you have sex you die right you know and now it's kind of a thing to try to you know go against that trope carpenter will tell you that was never his intention it just worked out that way i don't know if i believe that or not honestly <laughs> i don't out. i don't believe that or not. i think you know again this is a guy and it, carpenter will tell you his inspiration for having the kid be the killer at the beginning was he took a psychology class or something when he was in college and they went to a mental institution and he ran into a kid that had the look on his face that he uses to describe Michael later, the blank devil's eyes, all that stuff. Just this, you know, blank face just staring through him and it just, it scared him. And he said, you know, that to me is the scariest thing is that hmm. there's evil in the world and you can't explain it. So putting it in a kid that, you know, kills his promiscuous sister, uh, that, you know, that sets everything uh, at, at odds because you got to remember the time too, man. We've, we're coming out of the sexual revolution. We're in the seventies here, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it's a different time and that would have been a startling thing for the target audience to see because, you know, all of them had either been doing that or were going to go think, thought they were going to go do that later. Right. I mean, that was the idea. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, pretty much. I mean, you got uh, you got uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, who's uh, they're trying to hook up with a guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> apparently successfully trying to hook up with a guy, and uh, you've got her her friend who who is using her. To look after her babysitting kids so that she can go and have sex with her. Exactly. Yeah. She's the, the virginal, you know, terror or whatever, the lonely one. You know, that's what we're supposed to believe yeah. is she's the, the quiet, reflective one. Before we get to them, though, we, you know, there's the, the great breakout, you know, cause it just flashes forward 15 years and there is a cut of this that has like additional footage jammed into it. When they put it on TV, they had to stretch the time out. And it's a couple of neat scenes where like Loomis is talking about the kid and stuff, but it's, it really doesn't add anything to the story. Story. It was all shot when they made Halloween too, so no reason to talk about it here. I like how it just flashes forward from that night to Smith's Grove, and it's a stormy night, and you got this guy in a car with a nurse, and they're having this conversation. And the thing that struck me about it, Brian, was that he kept referring to it, you know, him as it, and the nurse calls him out on it. You know, the whole bit about yeah. like he's talking about it, and it, you know, that just it only adds ominous to what is already a, a freaky story. Well, and then he. he- he doesn't waver from that throughout it. He does. He says he's not a man yeah. constantly throughout the at least the first two films. He's like this. This is not a man. This is a monster. And so by to call it call Michael Myers, it makes sense in his world, right? Because he's not dealing with a man. He's dealing with a psychotic monster. Exactly. So you know, as he says, no conscience, no rhyme, no reason. You know, just patient and barely moved did, and seemed to be waiting on something and then whatever it was set him off on that night and I don't know I like the little conversation they have because it's just a minute or so but you get the idea that the nurse is totally not you know prepared at all for what what may befall her here and then as they pull up I, I think one of the creepiest things is again how that music starts laying in and you just see those people in those white hospital gowns walking around in the rain and I'm like there could be nothing freakier than that to come up on something like that hmm. yeah I would yeah <laughs> it, I'd be turning it, around and going home I don't care what they pay me <laughs> well, and, and I think what what I like a lot about this whole thing too is that um, you know we we see the guy, uh, his doctor, who's coming looking for him, and he alerts. I'm guessing it's the sheriff of the town. Right. I, I'm not sure that I don't think they made that clear, but he seems to be the one in charge. And they don't really alert anyone else that they have a psycho killer on the loose in the town. <laughs> you just see this guy, this guy and the cop going after him. And it isn't really until he, they find more murdered kids that the rest of the cops even get involved. Right. Well, you know, there's a line though that Loomis gives. And I thought it was a great one. He said, you know, if you, if you alert everybody, they'll see him on every corner. They'll do that. And I want you to remember that moment because later in this series, that's going to come up again. I'm glad you caught that though, because it is one of the parts of this that I always wondered. I'm like, I don't care how freaky out you are. You know, you, you call every cop you've got when this thing is what is loose. And, and I love the whole little conversation he has with the, uh, the guy at the hospital, like, you know, I, you know, you couldn't stop him with a, you know, an all porks bulletin wouldn't stop a five year old or whatever. I, I don't know. It's, it's this little back and forth. And they make that, that bit about how, you know, he don't even know how to drive. How's he going to get where you think he's going? And I don't know. I've always wondered, like, how did he learn how to drive? Like, what did you make of that? That he just jumps in that station wagon and takes off. Now, obviously, he's paid attention to something. Right. This whole time while he's been kind of. Mm-hmm. Not doing anything else but planning his escape, I guess. But, 
we didn't really get to see how well he drove. Yeah. Maybe he drove like crap. Well, but the <laughs> thing is, we see him drive later, and he actually does a pretty good job. He's a good stalk driver. I mean, he, it's, it's the scary part of it, right? I guess maybe he paid attention to how others were driving if they had to take him places. I really couldn't tell you how he learned how to drive. Maybe that's just one of the things we have to give him. <laughs> and and it is, you're right. It is one of the things we're supposed to give. We're supposed to just ride off. Uh, you know, the, as things tend to go, there's always lots of explanations, you know, and Loomis drops a line in there about somebody maybe gave him lessons, and that's just supposed to be a throwaway line. Well, the guy that did the, the novelization of this actually mm-hmm. takes that and tells the story of how Michael manipulated somebody to teach him how to drive when he was a teenager. So that actually does happen in the book. Like, you actually get to read that out. But on the film, we don't need it because we're just going with it, right? Because it's all about yeah. chasing. And you mentioned it. We'll go ahead and talk about it now. We, we'll meet the kids, and then we flash away, and we see Loomis making that phone call. He makes that phone call from the side of the road because he sees this garage pickup truck run off the side of the road and over in the leaves or whatever is this dead guy. So the the coveralls that Michael wears through the rest of the thing, that's where he gets them from. He just steals them from the guy and you wonder, did he act like he had had a flat tire? You know, what did he do? We don't know. We just see the wake of destruction because his hospital gown is thrown over there on the tree. The truck's left alone and the, uh, the mechanic is laying over there, you know, covered in blood. Yeah, I guess I didn't pick that up um, the first, when I watched it, but that makes sense as to where he got his outfit. Well, and and uh, what I thought was a little odd is that they they kind of played up the the automobile that he's driving. Is it like a school vehicle that he steals? Oh, it's a it's a state vehicle. It's like a state like a hospital, state hospital yeah. vehicle. So it's uh, he's walking around the campus a little bit here, and we see that vehicle and it it looked like it kind of alerted some of the kids to weird something weird over there or that they knew him almost well i don't know it is it is strange it's one of those things that like they don't know how he got there or whatever you just see him there and it, it it's an yeah, odd so car but at first but i thought he was posing as a janitor or something yeah but <laughs> yeah you could get that yeah if you don't if you didn't see the uh, the cover all bit now that's a good point so but the the scary part of it is that it's it's a car that you would recognize if you knew what to look for, but it's also nondescript enough that it just looks like a station wagon, you know. And in you know back in these days, and I think they even do it with uh, one of the like the realtors' cars. They have like little magnets on the side of the car, right? And so mm-hmm. it could you know it might just yeah. be that unless you're paying attention to it and, and look at you know Illinois State Hospital or whatever it's supposed to say on there. It's it's one of the ways that he's able to hide in, in a place like this. It's almost a neat little plot trick that they let him drive and stuff, but and. It's, and and, you know, like I said, the, the getting the coveralls off the mechanic is a nice little sleight of hand. One thing that never made any sense to me, and I want to just go ahead and talk about it now, and we'll, we'll turn back the clock for a second and talk about the, the kids, is, you know, when they're getting ready to go babysit, they roll up on the sheriff again, and he's outside of the hardware store where the alarm is going off, okay? Now, we've seen Michael all day that day, and he's got the mask on. <laughs> But just then, the alarm has gone up at the hardware store. I've always thought that was just a weird continuity problem there. That that at that point is when they figured out he broke into the hardware store. What was it closed on Friday? What what was that all about? Well, you never know. It's Halloween. Maybe they close for Halloween, and maybe it's special to them. <laughs> yeah, who knows? It's a small town. It is. I I guess they so. have weird quirks. Yeah, I guess so. But um, yeah, and, and uh, of course the uh, uh, the friend of Lori is his daughter. So I liked how they're smoking. What, pot oh yeah, in the car yeah, they're and, smoking weed. Oh so. oh oh. <laughs> 
here's my dad. Put it out as if that's not going to be smelled outside the door. I mean, come oh, they've on. had that conversation. I'm sure you can smell it. You know, yeah. So you have to be able to smell it. Have you ever been around pot? I mean, it's a smell. Oh yeah, you can't get away from that. So well, I think the the joke of that was that everybody working on this film was probably smoking weed. So I mean, it was our daddy just didn't care like most parents who are. Like that with kids, probably. Or like any kids. parents in this town. <laughs> so, but we'll get to the parents in a minute. We got to talk about the kids a little bit, Brian, because they are the focal point of so much else of what goes on here. We meet Laurie Strode as she's getting ready to go to school one day. She's walking down the street. She's got that haunting theme. And Jamie Lee Curtis, her first feature film. I mean, I mean I've seen Jamie Lee Curtis in I don't know how many films or whatever, but of course, I knew her as the woman, the girl from Halloween. I mean, she's always been mm-hmm. that to me. And to her credit, she has never shied away from the fact that this is the thing that made her a star. Well, absolutely not. And she came back for it, yeah. you know, 20 years later. So, Props to her. I mean, she knew where she got her start. And after this film, I think she was in a bunch of really crappy B-rated <laughs> horror flicks for a while yes. before really getting a, a good break. Yeah, Trading Places was really the thing that broke her when it was all said and done. The comedy with Dan Aykroyd, Diddy Murphy, that yeah, that yeah. made her a versatile star. And then, of course, she's gone on to do all kinds of good stuff. So, well, True Lies yeah. was a big one for oh, her. Oh, yes. And, yeah. yeah. So. And my girl, and and of course, you know she she's married to one of the guys from Spinal Tap. So I mean, how cool is that? So, so. <laughs> but no, I mean Jamie Lee Curtis. She she is supposed to be the you know all American girl next door, you know the good girl, right? And I mean it's in everything from her J.C. Penney outfit to everything. I mean I'm kind of like you know this is Willow in the first season of Buffy almost. Yeah, I. I could see that because she's so reserved and shy and I, I can, I can make that, uh, that, uh, connection as well. And she comes off as, you know, book smart and, and, uh, you know, wants to get into guys, but does, is afraid to type thing, right? I mean, who's the guy she's supposed to be hooking up with? Some guy named Ben? Yeah, she, yeah, she likes some kid named Bennett Tramer, so. <laughs> the way they introduce that piece, which is a small piece here. I mean, I, I get that, but. She's like, I don't know, maybe someone like this guy. And then immediately the girl's like, oh, you like him. Oh, I'm going to call him. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Like, and she does. God, that brings me back to yeah. those old days where it was just so petty and stupid like that. Well, yeah. well, yeah, and let's talk about her two friends. In the dark-headed one first, Annie, the sheriff's daughter who has the boyfriend mm-hmm. that gets grounded that ultimately you know, she's going to sneak out. She's the other babysitter for the night that that we know of. And I don't know, you know, you kind of get the sense that those two are pretty close. They live near each other. It's yeah. not far away. Well, right across the street. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, they live really right across the street from each other. <laughs> or is that their houses or the people that are babysitting? Those are the people houses. that are babysitting houses. But, you know, when she when okay. they walk home from school together, she walks right by the girl's house because that's where she bumps into oh, the sheriff. Right. So, they, I mean, it's a small town. It's supposed to be small town, middle America. It's, you know, it's Pasadena, mm-hmm. California. Don't look for the palm trees. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, that's part of the, the, the small town feel of it is that, you know, they could walk to school, then they could just drive to their, you know, babysitting jobs and stuff. But I like their banner back and forth. And I kind of like Annie. She's, I don't know, she's spunky. She's smart. She reminds me of some of my friends in high school that, you know, they were way more confident and kind of found themselves early on. And, you know, they didn't mind who they were. And, and she's pretty ballsy and brassy. I mean, when they're walking around and Michael's stalking, them, you know, Lori sees him in lots of places and she walks right into the bush like, hey, come on, creep, you know, and she calls him out when he's driving fast by him. And I don't know, I kind of like Danny. Yeah, I did too. She, I mean, she's a little bit annoying. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, um, I thought, I thought 
she was funny because of all the, the different um, conundrums she put herself in. Oh right? yeah, all the yeah the, the spills on her clothes and goes to wash them, gets locked in the, the washroom. Which another funny thing, their washroom is outside. The house. Uh, yeah, I'm like we're talking about a different time, so. <laughs> right? Yeah, so she gets locked in there. Then she gets stuck in the window trying to escape, and oh god, it's like. Honey, yeah, and then and then ultimately get strangled and killed. So, I mean, yeah, well, yeah, you know, she a series of unfortunate events, right? Yeah, I, I, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I, again, I like the character. And, and here's yeah. the other thing too: is like, so she's supposed to go meet up with her boyfriend. Was it Mike Paul, or something? Paul. Paul. Okay, she's supposed. To, why doesn't he ever come looking for her? I mean. She never shows up. Well, you got to remember that, that after she gets killed and everything that happens, that's all within maybe 15, 20 minutes of actual time. Okay. Like in movie time, it's you know a half hour or whatever, but that's all you know, right there together. So he wouldn't have even known she was, you know, he could have just thought she was maybe getting rid of the other kid or something. So I never thought about Paul. I'm surprised they didn't go back to him. They call back to every other thing in these sequels. So, but, uh, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah, he might have been a suspect, you know, <laughs> who knows? So sure. at, I mean, at some point in, in all of this, but, uh, I don't know. I, I, I like Danny too. And, um, she's definitely a different person than Linda, PJ Souls, the, the blonde, the typical blonde bimbo, right? That's what she's supposed to be. She's the one who comes in with the boyfriend after Annie's been killed, correct? Yes, and she's the one that they have yeah. sex in the other people's house, by the way. <laughs> Why not, huh? Yeah, but, yeah, not even Annie's hey, man, house. You, I, know, I know you and your wife, go out, sometimes <laughs> you hire babysitters, you better lock the bedroom, bro. <laughs> I guess, my God. But, uh, yeah, no, you know, the other thing that, that was kind of funny is that she goes to get in the car, Annie goes to get in the car, and it's locked, right? Mm-hmm. So she goes and she doesn't have her keys. She goes and finds them and then just opens the door. Never unlocked it. Yeah. That's because he broke in <laughs> anyway. and yeah, what was waiting on her. That's the, uh, that's the deal. Well, I know, but it's like, well, the, okay. the- she went. To get the keys because it was locked and didn't even try to unlock the door, it just opened it up. Well, here's the thing: the observation of this and what you you know is that the two girls, the two other girls, get killed because they're not paying attention to what's around them. They don't see Michael watching them at school. They don't see him when he's standing by the bush, when he's driving by and stuff. Laurie's the one that that notices him because she's not so caught up in herself that she will notice these things. Yeah. They're too busy doing other stuff. And you know, even Annie when she's going back to that car, there she's you know singing all about her boyfriend. Going to go get Paul, all this stuff, and that's why she's paying no attention to the fact that oh, that woman wasn't that door locked. And the only thing that gets her finally is she realizes there's steam on the window. Where'd that come from? And then of course he pops up in the back seat, which is that's a great moment and a scare. And Linda mm. gets killed because she's too busy screwing her boyfriend. And you know he gets I, the way he dies. We'll talk about that in a minute. Is is pretty gruesome, but she doesn't know that that's Michael standing there in a sheet to freak her out. She's paying no attention, turns her back to him, and he strangles her with the phone cord. You know, yeah. I, you know that that's the thing is these girls get killed not so much because they're promiscuous, it's because they're not paying attention. But let's let's talk a little bit about Linda. We talked about Annie, and we've kind of gone through her life on, on the film. What did <laughs> what did you make of Linda? Because I've already described her as sort of the bubble headed blonde. You know, dits. I didn't give her a whole lot of thought because all she really did was come in and try to bang her boyfriend. I mean, not try. Her. I think she does. Okay, so, well, that, yeah. that was yeah. So I mean, I didn't give her a whole lot of credence because she really isn't used a whole lot other than to set up that she's friends with these two, and that for some reason that means she can come over and have sex in the. Well, you get you get the sense that like her and Annie have had this little 
you know thing going on. It's like, well, I'm babysitting and the parents are aware or whatever. Well, I'll keep the kid distracted. I don't know if that's really. guys come over. Yeah, I think it was more of they were all going to meet up together and go out, right? But they got there and there was nobody there, so. You know, let's fuck. Well, no, no, well, no. Here's the thing: like, you got to remember, Annie's boyfriend gets grounded, so she can't go out. So she's babysitting, no matter what. And Linda uh-huh. lays this whole thing on her, like, "Well, are we still on for tonight?" And she's like, "I don't know. I don't know if I could do that or not now." And like, she's being kind of a, a twit about it to Linda. And Linda's like, "Come on, we've been thinking about it all week." So apparently, her and Bob were like planning on the nasty somewhere well, along the way. And I don't know. I think I still think that they were just getting together to go whatever maybe screw somewhere else and drink or, or well who the, knows. the fact that they do do it in somebody else's house i'm like wow really really so well, and apparently and, when the mood hits huh well let me ask you where are all the damn parents i know why they're not there because well, of the film wise they, parties they, apparently they don't have money for the you know the adult you know participants in this film but seriously there are no parents in this town and i know that's a trope of horror films i think this is why well, my ga- my gathering is that they all went to the same party. They must have. You know, because they're all going to parties. And, and how many parties can there be in this small town? So apparently they're all out at, at the... All the parents are out at a party while all the kids are free to do whatever the heck they want on Halloween. I, where are all the trick-or-treaters? Well, you know, you see some and then you see none. I'm with, I'm with you. Like, it, some of these houses got hit early, I guess. I don't know. Like way early. <laughs> yeah, way early. Again, how many people are in this town? You know, we don't know. But it, because everybody knows the story about, the, you know, the Myers kid that killed his sister and all this. I mean, they, they do this thing. That's how, as a matter of fact, that's how it's played off as to why Michael even starts following Laurie to begin with is she's dropping the key off on her way to school that morning. You know, yeah. Her dad's selling the house and Michael pops up from behind the door, which is another great moment. And that's how it plays. I mean, for, and if you never saw any other Halloween film, the only thing you would be able to think of at the end of this is that he saw her and decided to follow her around all day because that's really what he does yeah. and then decided just to stalk and kill all of her friends. Correct. Yeah. I would have thought that he was going after her because she's trying to sell his home. Yeah. Right? Ma- maybe and so. And that's yeah. why he targeted her. But uh, we'll learn why later in the next film. But yeah. Yeah. And that, <laughs> for that, now, yeah. Yeah. For now, I mean, that's all we're left with. And uh, before we get into Michael and talking about him and we you would go back through the kills, I want to talk about Dr. Loomis a little bit. Donald mm-hmm. Pleasance. Now, I've seen this guy. Of course, I know him from the James Bond movie he was in. And then I saw a lot of the, I don't know, some of the B-rated sci-fi he was in in the 60s and 70s. He's always kind of playing a bad guy and stuff. And I don't know. I, he's known now as the Halloween guy. I mean, this is he's in, you know, so. <laughs> many of these movies you'll see him for a long time i promise and he's he's in a lot of these and i don't know i love the performance though and the idea of having like a i don't know a van helsing to run around and chase michael and stuff well i think he's a you know he comes off as a very overconfident guy who believes he's the only person who can stop him and i don't know if that's because he's the only person who views him as not a human being that he would have no qualms about stopping him or what, but uh, he, he seems to feel like the police have no chance against him, but me, I got this. Yeah. Right? Well, that's the funny thing, right? Like, when your therapist decides you're Satan, it's probably time to get a new therapist. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know. Well, if in it, this if case, he, he's right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if he if he turned that in on a report, and again, that's in that extended TV cut, you get to hear him arguing that in front of, you know, I don't know, other doctors before, and I'm like, somebody at some point would have been like, Sam is not going to be allowed to treat the Myers boy anymore. Like, you know, that's, he's clearly gotten over-involved, but no, he's, he's there as the exposition to keep 
keep reminding us of how evil Michael is because as he you know, all of his monologues are all about how evil Michael is and um, I do like his instincts though let's let's go to the house he goes with the sheriff and they find the dead dog carcass right and mm-hmm. I'm like oh that's just Oh, it's grotesque, right? But it totally fits the what he's saying about the guy. This is not a man. This is, you know, I keep well, telling you. Well, then he's just a dog fucking he's a, he's a dog killer, right? Yeah, what, what an asshole, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if he would have been around, you know, him and Michael Vick would have been in prison together there for a while. Oh, jeez. You know, a little different. <laughs> yeah. But any, anyway, I don't know. Yeah, I like the, the, again, that he's there to remind us just how sinister Michael is. And I like, too, that, you know, the, I don't know, the, the gutter or whatever falls off and breaks the window while he's trying to tell the sheriff some story and it freaks him out so much he pulls out his 38. You know, it's like, <laughs> what psychiatrist walks around with a, with a pistol? <laughs> Well, apparently this one, because it feels like maybe it's got silver bullets in it. But, <laughs> no, uh, I don't think there's anything like that, but <laughs> that's later on in one of the other parts. I'm oh, jeez. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, here's the other thing, too, is he pulls out that pistol, and the sheriff doesn't stop him. <laughs> well, yeah, but the, the next thing is he's like, I've got a permit for it, and the sheriff is just like, sounds to me like you're just being a wuss, you know? Oh, and, God. I mean, he just calls him out on it, and he, and he says, oh, I am scared. I'm scared of this thing, and he talks more about how evil Michael is. I don't know. I, I like the Loomis character. Like I said, I think he adds, uh, he's there to add to the mystique because, you know, Michael doesn't talk. Yeah. He never speaks. He just does things. And really, th- that's a good transition to talk about Michael. The Michael Myers character here is, uh, it's unlike any of the other slashers that we'll see. And it's even unlike other portrayals of this slasher that we'll see because he's just a normal looking thing. He just walks around and he's so quiet and so unassuming that nobody says anything or thinks anything weird about the guy in the station wagon with the Halloween mask just sort of traipsing around all over town today. Again, yeah. that's odd. Yeah, like we... Nobody walks around <laughs> with a Halloween mask on all the time. Come right. on. We would say that. In our sensibilities, yes. But again... In small town America, we're coming out of Vietnam. We're a little more hopeful here. Maybe this is post Star Wars, man. Everybody believes again. So in America, I mean, this that's the pop culture, you know, narrative. And so that's why you could get away with it. Nobody would, well, it would think anything wonder, about it. But mm-hmm. it makes mm-hmm. me wonder if when he's just walking around town, if he's wearing the mask. I only open, right? They I don't really tell us or show us. But. Well, they, uh, there's only one shot where it looks like he is, and it's when Laurie's in class and sitting there hearing the whole thing about fate never changes or whatever, and mm-hmm. she sees him out the window, he's got it on. And so okay. that's why I brought that up earlier about it's kind of weird that then they then they find out he broke into the hardware store. He seems to have had it all day, but, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's walking around with it on or not. I, I get the sense that he is only because Michael kills when he has the mask on. He doesn't take it yeah. off to kill. Right. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but well, you're right. We don't know if, if he had it all day or not. That's a good point. Maybe he didn't like when the kids are running out of school and he stops one of them, which, is, by the way, is a, a great freaky scene and stuff. But uh, the other thing I noticed about him, it's, it's also in the way he walks. And the guy that they got to play him here was just a dude that came down to you know, work on the set because he wanted to work in the film industry. And they said, well, if you're going to hang around, why don't you wear the mask and you be the killer? I mean, it was that simple. And wow. his name's Nick Castle. And if you've ever seen a movie called The Last Starfighter or maybe Major Pain, uh, he directed that. So <laughs> along with some other wow. stuff, he's, he's a okay. fairly accomplished director in his own right. But 
the thing about him is that, that they loved is that he had this walk to him that he just kind of gracefully moved around things. He didn't get in a big hurry to do anything, but he didn't look slow either. He just kind of glided along the ground. They don't know. And he says to this day, I have no idea what they're talking about. I just walk the way I walk, but it's, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great walk and it's a great little, the way he just sort of turns his hand on stuff. And it's, uh, it's all about that supreme confidence. Cause that's the other thing you get about Michael is that he knows what he's doing. Doing, even if nobody else does and I, I like the way he goes about doing stuff and so many of his kills are tricks like he sets up traps for people and stuff yeah. uh what'd you make of that well it seems to fit the motif right mm-hmm. i mean he, he's psychotic right <laughs> and he it just seems like it would it would make sense that he would have a plan on to kill someone instead of just walking in and doing it, right? He wants to be, he wants to sneak up on people. He wants to surprise them and he wants to make it quick. Yeah, exactly. I mean, once, once he finally gets them where he wants them, it's over with pretty fast. Yeah. So he's got to plan that out. I mean, yeah, just doesn't happen like that every time. So it makes sense that he would set up traps or or things like that. Well, I mean, you know, know, he's standing outside watching Annie talk on the phone to Lori when she spills the butter on herself and has to just strip for no reason in the kitchen because that, okay, whatever. But he's watching her and he, you know, he gets so, I always have read this as he got so excited by that, that, you know, seeing the naked girl or whatever, that he broke the plant and that made her turn around. And then the dog went back out there and that's when he strangles that dog. Dog, you know, and kills the dog. And yeah. so, and then, you know, when she's out in the laundry room, he's at like both sides of the door. He just keeps walking around waiting for a moment to get her, you know. And I, I don't know. I love the way he kept setting it up and he'd, you know, shut the door on her and he'd lock it and he, you know, and she, the girl would come out and he'd let her go. But the other thing is, he doesn't kill the kids, like the little kids. He's not interested in them at all, it seems like. He's only interested in the teenagers. Yeah. Why is just the teenagers? I, again, harken back to the, the sister that he killed was also a teenager. Um, and the, it's the teenage sex thing, right? It seems to be anyway. Um, I don't know that he would necessarily kill one of the babysitted, the babysat kids, right? If they were in the house too, I think he'd let them go. Uh, but that's just a guess. I'm, I don't know the psychology of Michael Myers very well, <laughs> but it seems like he's after the, the older kids and not really caring much as much about the younger ones. Right. It's just something to note because when they show up and are around, he never goes after them. He doesn't even much mm-hmm. swat at them, but he's he's stalking the teenagers and he you know he kills uh Annie finally. We've already talked about how she gets killed in her car or whatever. Linda and her boyfriend show up at the house. There's nobody around. She calls Laurie to realize that Annie already dropped the kid off, so they got the place to themselves. They go upstairs and screw and I, there's that one moment like when they're in the midst of coitus and you see his shadow just pass over him so he stands there and watches him and i'm like how freaky is that and then when he kills bob the boyfriend that's one of the iconic kills of the series picks him up off the ground and sticks Mm -hmm. him to the wall with that butcher knife that is ah that is messed up that's really gross and (laughs) it would never actually work but (laughs) okay mythbusters it was pretty cool (laughs) no you're you're not you're not wrong <laughs> it would never. It have to be one hell of a knife. I mean, man, you talk about some Ginsu. <laughs> it would have to be one hell of a huge knife. It, yeah. You'd have to stick just right into a two by four and be able to handle the weight. But anyway, right, we're right. getting into minute details. Um, but I thought it was kind of cool, you know. But and my question is, how did he get so damn powerful? 
Well, see, that's the thing, and it's not explained, and I think it's one of those things we just have to accept is that he is not a human. He is a force of evil, and it goes to what you know Carpenter and, and company referred to him as and referred to that character as when they were making this. They called him the shape, that he's, he's a human being only in the fact that he is inhabiting a body, but that he is the epitome and the shape of evil. Evil has inhabited this boy, and he grew up to be a man, and because he's evil, he's in some ways supernaturally strong and you know he can just do stuff it is one of the the weird things and it's certainly something that i'll be looking forward to having that conversation with you when we get to the rob zombie version because he comes up with an actual physical example for it and and that that's a different story but in this one yeah michael's what he's six one and he's just a you know 180 pound dude he's there's nothing special about him but he's freakishly strong yeah, you know, there's no, there's nothing to him, right? And that again, that's what makes it scary, though, is that he's not this Hulk like Jason was. Jason was always this big guy, right? And he's not uh, Freddy who can catch you in dreams and you know shapeshift and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He's just a guy. He's just a guy walking around, and that nothing seems to be able to stop him, and nothing seems to be able to get in his way. We'll talk about the ending here, but he gets shot six times, and right doesn't apparently affect him (laughs) well i mean he falls to the ground he looks dead and the next time loomis looks back he's gone he falls two stories or at least one story right yeah and after being shot six times and over a balcony flipping himself and lands on his head and back right and he gets that up. kill most people. Yeah. I mean, the shots well, alone. Well, I was about, about to say, yeah, the bullets might do it too. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> but you know, the thing is, think about even before then when he's stalking Lori, she stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle, like deep in the neck. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. when the, when you look at it on the ground, that thing's like half covered in blood. So she nailed him with it. Then she hits him in the eye with a hanger and stabs him with a butcher mm-hmm. knife. So I mean, he takes all kinds of punishment and still keeps coming. So that's one of the, the inexplicable parts of Michael. Do they ever explain it as we go on? Because uh, my God, well, I I don't want to ruin it for you, so uh, we'll, <laughs> oh, we'll just we'll just get there. We'll get there when we get there. But I do want to talk about the stalking of Laurie for a minute, though, because mm-hmm. and and how he sets all that up. I mean, he it, she puts the kids to bed, and she's noticing across the street nothing's going on. So where the heck? You know, Lyndon Bob's car's out there. Annie's car's still there, but it didn't look like it ever left. What's going on? Are they all inside just screwing all the time? Why aren't they answering the phone? You know, what, what's up with that? And she's on the phone with Linda when Linda gets strangled, and she thinks it's just mm-hmm. a joke. And so right. she finally goes over there. And I love how none of the lights work in the house. He's figured out how to you know, tear the electrical panel off. So that that's cool. And when she when she discovers the bodies upstairs, that is one of the most horrific scenes in the film because we we didn't talk about it before, but at some point he steals his sister's uh, gravestone, sets it on the bed, lays Annie yeah. on the bed, puts uh, Paul hanging upside down in one of the closets and uh, Linda in the other closet, and all for Laurie to find. And she runs out of the room like I love how she plays it too instead of screaming her head off she's so frightened she can barely whimper and then probably Dean Cundy's best shot in the whole film is that light that just barely comes on and you see the face come up behind her that would be one of the most scary things to walk up on oh I mean yeah can you imagine Uh, (laughs) no and uh, I don't know that he necessarily choreographed that scene for her in particular if not for someone else maybe the doctor but um yeah to walk upon that uh wow um and i think uh either the reaction is going to be what she did which is 
barely able to make a sound, freaked out, fall down the stairs, whatever. Or you scream your head off. Yeah. Because you're scared <laughs> crapless, right? <laughs> and that's how I would have probably reacted. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I liked, I liked that whole scene because it, the music, everything, the, the visuals, amazing. And then when she sees him coming, oh, you know, no. how is she going to get away? You know, where does she go? How does she get out of this? I mean, yeah, he's, he seems trapped. Yeah. I mean, he stabs her in the shoulder and she falls down the stairs. Yeah. You know, I mean, just uh, talk about like, uh, and then, you know, I mean, they have their face off and the, and she gets out of the house, gets to the other one and finally gets that kid to open the door and then realizes the windows open. So he <laughs> snuck in there behind the window and it's like, oh crap, you know, and she grabs that knitting needle and it's only because he misses her on the couch. Kurt and I had a joke about stormtroopers bad shooting that it had to be the helmets and stuff. I've always attributed that to the fact that he's wearing a mask in the dark and he couldn't figure out where exactly she was. So he just guessed and he landed right beside her with that butcher knife and then she, she nails him with the, uh, the pin, but still a great scene. But I love how she has, to, she puts him down twice. You know, in in this moment, did you get a text message there? So, no, game. I <laughs> oh, thought okay. I turned it off. Oh, you're fine. But anyway, you know, he uh, um, and she puts him down twice, and she finally sends the kids running out of the house. And I love that the best moment is when he sits up behind her, and that music clicks, right? And she oh, doesn't yeah. know he's still there. Well, and th- th- that's the thing too is like, um, she does put him down, and she sends the kids out. Why does she sit down and try to catch her breath? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, Why doesn't she also go running? I don't know. That is a great question. I would have run out of that house with the I, kids. Like, come on, we're exactly. going. <laughs> yeah. I would have never just sat there mm-hmm. and tried to collect my thoughts at that point. Because you have no clue if you've killed this guy. Yeah. You know you've done some damage to him. But my God, <laughs> get out of the house, go find the cops, and and deal with it then. But she just sits there and... Yeah, I'm just sitting there yelling at my TV like, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. you know, you, you can chalk it up to maybe all of this at once. Just It just hit her and she just went into shock. I mean, that's... Well, you know. I, that's very possible. I mean, I can see that happening for sure. But the instant that you hear him <laughs> approaching, get the hell out of there, girl. <laughs> and that's the thing is that, you know, we have to believe that somehow or another she didn't hear him or right. whatever, well, which is hard to think about. She could be blocking about. out the, the noises, too, because she's in that state of shock. So I can understand that as well, not being able to hear. But, uh, you know, luckily for her, the doctor shows up just in time. Exactly. Well, he sees the kids run out of the front of the house. Oh, yeah. He's already figured out that Michael's in the neighborhood because he found the station wagon. He sends the sheriff down one street. He's walking around. And then he runs in, and like you say, it's in the nick of time because he's, you know, Michael's got her, and he's just going to choke her to death. And mm-hmm. I love the way she gets away from him finally as she rips that mask off of him. That's why I go back to that he probably was wearing it most of the day because the next thing he does is he pulls it back down over his face because he's not well, going to kill her with just the face. Right, and it seems like the mask is his comfort. Right? Yes. Like, if that makes sense. No, it does, but he, yeah. He, if, if it comes off in the middle of an act, it freaks him out because he needs to have that mask on in order to commit the act, right? Right. So that mask is both his comfort and his power. Yep. And without it, he's just a regular man who can't do this kind of thing, or he's trying, he can't face that well, uh, belief. Like, I don't know, maybe he believes he's someone else when the mask is on. Yep. 
and can justify his actions that way. The, the, but I, he looked absolutely freaked out when they, when she took that off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I love it, too. That's that's also not the guy. The the guy you see in every other scene playing Michael, or, or most of the other scenes, that's not him. They brought in one guy just for the face, and that's him. And that's his well, only, that's weird. That's his only scene. So, they, they I don't, if you've ever seen Nick Castle, he, he kind of looks like a goblin. I mean, no offense to the guy, but he has a he has a sinister look to him, even without trying. He sort of looks like Tim Burton or something. But Maybe that would have been good for the part. Well, but uh, Carpenter specifically wanted somebody that had just a normal face that could hmm. that could just look like it would also be blank. And so they found this guy and just went with it, and it was his one shot. But uh, I, you know, I I like what you've hit on there, and there's there's something to be said. I mean, I think there's some yeah, there's probably some good literature about you know disassociative disorders and people that wear masks to get behind them and stuff. I mean, that you know, it's certainly an iconic part of the part. I mean, that mask is his power, his protection. It's the wall that he puts up between him and the rest of the world, Brian. And he stops from it to put it back on, and that's when Loomis you know fires that first shot in him, and then hits him another five times and knocks him out the window. And knocks him out the window in such a profound way that, and looks down upon him laying motionless in the ground, that everyone believes that he's finally gone. And of course, me knowing at this point that there's more Halloweens to come, know that he's not dead, and I'm thinking, well, how's he going to get out of this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I mean... He just got shot. Yeah, you see him get out of stabbings and stuff, but now he's been shot, and he's fallen quite a long way. <laughs> and to, to get up from that is something, but the fact that he does, and I think what's even better is the way Donald Pleasance plays it, the look on his face as if I knew this was going to happen. You know, like I knew yeah. it wasn't over, and uh, that apparently was his idea and was a great, great choice to make because it, it ends, you know, he gives that line to Laurie, you know, about this, this whole running joke between her and the kid she babysits is, is the boogeyman real? And she's like, no, and then that's the thing she asked Loomis. Was that the boogeyman? And Loomis is like, well, yep, kind of was. <laughs> you know? And then he's, then he's gone. So, yeah. and, and it ends on, you see like a, a montage of shots of all the places Michael has been hiding throughout the day. And you hear that breathing, that heavy breathing behind the mask. And that's to let us know that, yeah, he's still out there somewhere. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. freaking audiences out, man. They walk out of there into the night and the killer is still out there. Yeah, well, well, right, because he's gone. He's not lying in the ground, and so um, class not dismissed. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're still hunting this guy. And but what really bugs me, Jay, is that the cop doesn't seem to think this is a big deal. <laughs> the whole freaking film. Yeah, he seems to blow this off. Like the whole time is that that great. Oh, thing there of, you are. Yeah, it's like, I mean, well, no, the whole time he's just like, Doctor, you're just talking, you're just bothering me. You know, he's like, he's so well, annoyed then, by the doctor. Right, and then he he's gone and comes up and says, he's like, Oh, hey, how's it going? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, there you are. I, you know, I just went to get something to eat or something. Well, no, he's <laughs> like, like I've covered this town. There's nobody here. I think you're way off on this. And, oh, you know, and of course, you know, he could not be wrong. And he has no idea how wrong he is that his daughter is dead upstairs in that house. Not you know, yet. What a, mm-hmm. Yeah, what a what a moment. But, uh, you know, more to come. Like you say, school's out, but uh, it's not not over yet. So <laughs> we're, we're coming back. So, well, Brian, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for John carpenter's halloween well i gotta tell you jay like we said earlier if it wasn't for such an amazing soundtrack uh to this and and such good visuals this film the dialogue alone is is pretty wretched (laughs) (laughs) yes it is (laughs) it's it's not awesome yeah however because we have such amazing music and visuals it was i i was 
totally 100% into this movie the whole time. I was freaked out a little bit. I was, uh, you know, just blown away. And I, I found myself so into it that I was like literally yelling at the TV, like, what in the hell are you doing <laughs> half the time? Like, why would you do this? Why would you go there? You know, and that's a sign of a really good movie because it pulls me in. And even though I know that all these stupid horror movies have the same tropes, I still get sucked into this one. <laughs> and I start yelling at these people for doing stupid things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? And so that to me, that's a sign of a great movie. And the whole thing that they've they done with this movie, I, I really enjoyed a lot. So for me, as a first-time viewer, I'm giving this a large popcorn. I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, this, it being a first-time viewer. I mean, it's obvious that I adore this movie. I know it backward to forward, you know. And, and even that, I, I'll confess, folks, I watched it three times for this review. So, you know, just to give myself the, the chance to really be critical about it. And you're right. The dialogue in this is not, not memorable at all. There's Really, the only person that has memorable lines is Loomis. And all of his lines are all about how evil Michael is, you know. But it, it adds gravitas to it. There's so much about this movie that... I still enjoy, no matter how many times I see it, I see things that I hadn't noticed before, little stuff. And I think that's the sign of a, a great movie, that there's there's very few that exist like that. This mm. is one of them for me. And, you know, I'd said it on earlier podcasts and, and say it again. This is in my, my big three as far as favorite films of all time. I, I really like this film, even in spite of its flaws. I think it gives it character and the music and the visuals in this and just the idea of the story. I can't believe it took them this long for them to come up with an idea like this around Halloween. But wow, what a great way to, to pull it off. And, uh, you know, I was excited about where could it go. I didn't know there were sequels after the first time I saw this, but you better bet when I found out there were, I definitely wanted to try to see them and, and, uh, went out of my way to try to find them and did. So I, I think a lot of this movie and i think even if you're not a horror fan this is one you can watch because the blood in this is very light this is all about suspense and this is a great suspense film it's right up there with some of the best suspense films of all time and so for me it's extra large popcorn i think it's uh, fantastic but a uh, uh, very fun ride and always fun to revisit and have enjoyed talking about it with you but we're just getting started man we got a long <laughs> way to go and apparently nine more films yeah and the and the, and the next one is more of the night he came home that was the teaser of it so we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it next time folks thanks for joining us on this latest edition of film strip you can find more episodes on our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies you can also find links to our facebook and twitter pages there where you can like our page and comment about the different movies have a discussion with us on there and twitter and if you like the show leave us a review on itunes because it helps other people find the show you can also find links to our other continuous play shows brian tell them about the artist laying the Artist Slaying is our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective. And of course, uh, we have finished all seven seasons, which in the Buffy podcast world is not something that happens very often. <laughs> yep. So we're very proud of that, that fact. We did finish all seven seasons. It's a episode by episode look at the television series that aired from 97 to 2000 and what, two, three, 2003. And so, um, it's Jay and I, and we had a blast doing it, I would say. And it's just one of those iconic TV series that has such a great following out there. And uh, highly recommend if you're a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, a Joss Whedon fan. If you love the show, use us as a companion because we talk about it, the episodes. We try not to stray off the episodes very often as we go through them. And so you can literally sit down and watch a show and listen to the commentary we have on it afterwards and not feel like, 
we're bombarding on you going into the next one. So highly recommend you do that. We also have another one, Jay, called our Squared Circle Flashback Podcast. And that is our wrestling-themed podcast. The WWE had released a WWE Network, which has a vast library of content going back to the days when I started watching wrestling and you started watching wrestling. And I'm the host of that one, and I bring um, various people along for the ride, depending on the uh, topic of the show. We look at different shows, and Jay, you've been on several times, and... Uh, some of my old compadres from my radio days have come on a couple times, and we, we really go into a specific show, talk about the history of the show, talk about the matches, and then talk about what we thought of that. So that's a fun podcast as well. Indeed, and there's always, of course, the Fabish Film Factor podcast, where Kurt Fabish brings on different folks to talk about the things he's into, whether it's Game of Thrones or top films of a certain year. All of that, again, available on the Continuous Play website and on iTunes. So check us out. Let us know what you think, folks, and keep joining us again for more more uh, episodes in this Halloween retrospective. Until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to our Halloween retrospective series. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes like our Facebook page and visit our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies for more episodes. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of its respective owners and is used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504, C2, Title 17. Title 17.